0: Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. The U.S. is about to get a new supply of oil for about six months that you don't have to drill for, but you have to drill for the rest of it. And that's why we call the podcast Drilling Deep. Our guest this week is Tracy Rosser. He is the Executive Vice President of Operations at Transplace, which if you remember last year was bought by Uber Freight. He's in a position that gives him a great overview of the supply chain, especially from the shipper's perspective. And we're going to be speaking with him in a few moments. I made reference to the U.S. getting a new source of oil. I'm referring, of course, to the announcement Thursday that the Biden administration would release one million barrels of oil per day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and that it would do so for six months. The U.S. had announced an earlier release a few weeks ago as part of a coordinated release with other members of the International Energy Agency. But this one is on a level that we've never seen before. By the time it's all over, it could be about 180 million barrels. There has never been a release like that. And you know what? This is what the SPR was built for. Its creation was hatched in the 70s when there was a fear that some kind of tension in the Middle East, some kind of military action might lead to a conflict that could shut the Strait of Hormuz, the small waterway where exports from Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, the UAE and Kuwait all traveled through. But that has never actually happened. There have been other releases tied to a cutoff or potential cutoff of oil. When Libya's civil war began in 2011, soon a coordinated effort by the IEA put barrels on the market. Strangely, when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, no strategic stocks were released until the U.S. actually started its counteroffensive in early 1991, even though the market saw pretty quickly that an Iraqi attack on Saudi Arabia was not going to happen. That had been the big fear leading up to that war. There have been other releases, but this is the granddaddy of them all, and it's what the SPR was meant to do. If we assume that oil supplies out of Russia are going to drop by 3 million barrels per day, which is the IEA estimate, then releasing oil out of the SPR is exactly what we should be doing. If not now, when? Let's do the math. The world oil market is about 100 million barrels per day. It might be a little less than that now with expectations of softer demand because of high prices. If we lose 3 million barrels per day out of Russia, that's 3% of the world's supply. No kidding. Losing 3% in a market that already is tightly balanced is a supply shock by any definition. So how are we going to get those 3 million barrels per day back? I say back in the sense that the market will always move to equilibrium. It can get to equilibrium by more production elsewhere. It can get there by pulling oil out of inventories. It can get there by using less. But it will move toward equilibrium. Using less is known formally as demand destruction, and you get there by higher prices discouraging consumption. It's not pretty. We've talked here before that there may be new supplies out of Venezuela and Iran as sanctions are eased against those countries, even though there might be legitimate political objections to that. The fact is you cannot fight every single battle all at once. U.S. output is expected to rise 800,000 to 900,000 barrels per day this year, Though to be honest, the weekly production figures aren't giving me a lot of confidence that will be reached. They're up only about a 100,000 barrels per day in the first quarter. So that leaves demand destruction and pulling oil out of inventory. But inventory depletion doesn't go on in secret. And if the market is not going to destroy demand and instead needs to pull oil out of inventories to get that balance, that will be reflected in the price. That leaves a healthy transfer of oil out of the SPR and into the market as the only alternative and that is what we're doing. I see a lot of questions online how will we replace it? Well, pretty simple, the Congress will authorize an expenditure or expenditures in coming years and we'll buy oil to refill the reserve. Seems reasonable to me. I also see a lot of questions on just how much this will impact prices. I really don't know and I'm sure there are analysts trying to model it right now. The main thing you need to know is that there was going to be a 3 million barrel per day gap that needed to be filled. And with this release, it's going to be about a third of the way there. Last year, let's move here on Drilling Deep. Last year, one of the big stories in the freight market was the acquisition of TransPlace by Uber Freight. As I wrote at the time, TransPlace as a provider of managed transportation services through its transportation management systems is viewed as a shipper down operation, providing services to companies looking to move freight to market and having decided to turn over that task To a company like TransPlace. Regardless of the Uber Freight acquisition, that position gave TransPlace a ringside seat to the problems in the supply chain. So joining us today to discuss the TransPlace perspective is Tracy Rosser. Tracy is an executive vice president at TransPlace and he came there in 2019 from his position as senior vice president of transportation and supply chain for Walmart. So he's got a real strong perspective. So anyway, Tracy, welcome to Drilling Deep today.
1: Hey, great to be here with you, John. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: So let's talk a little bit about whether from your perch, and you certainly have a great perch, whether you've seen any easing in supply chain issues.
1: So, John, we uh, at, at TransPlace were fortunate enough to really see a broad sector and um, in, in quite a lot of breadth across the supply chain from the standpoint of about $15 billion of freight under management. Been across key verticals such as uh, the chemical sector, consumer products, retail, industrials, packaging, um, and literally across all modes, across uh, ocean air, um, rail, truck, all, all segments of, uh, of over the road from the standpoint of modal segments, parcel LTL, truckload, all segments of truckload. Um, I would tell you this thing, it it ebbs and flows. And when you say easing, I would say yes, but Um, I look at data daily and uh, in weekly, I would tell you that just very recently, we're seeing spot rates uh, decline, which everybody's seeing that, um, which points to a bit of easing in the supply demand uh, formula. And um, I would tell you that um, acceptance levels against routing guides in the truckload segment um, have improved a few hundred basis points over the last few weeks, um, but still at a very, what I would call, challenged point. So when I say yes, but um, it's easing, but still quite constrained. Um, and then when you throw in the, the situation with fuel, and then you throw in the reports yesterday of the largest container container uh, port in the world in Shanghai, uh, and the cities of, of Shanghai shutting down for four days. Um, that's that's part of the yes, but.
0: But, you know, let's I'm I'm going to put you on the spot here to define something. You know, the term supply chain issues is get gets thrown around so easily, and that it probably doesn't have a firm definition. I I probably view it one way, and you might view it another, and the average person on the street might view it a third way. So if you were really pressed, how would you define the term supply chain issue? Um, I would say anything that um,
1: impacts the flow of goods, um, whether it's upstream, downstream, raw materials, labor, transportation, um, the The production of anything that uh, that that is involved in the movement of transportation, i.e. Class A trucks, ships, et cetera. So anything that touches the movement or impacts the movement of product um, or, or goods, I consider to be within the, within the framework of supply chain. I,
0: I guess this is kind of a dumb question, but I have to ask it anyway. You talked about the decline in spot rates, and of course, we've also seen in the sonar uh, outbound tender volume index, certainly a drop in the amount of freight that's moving. You, you view these as clear, uh, unambiguous signs that things are easing up? Um, I, I'll
1: tell you, you do scratch your head and you, you, you wonder, is it part of just normal seasonal easing, John, or is it something that's out there that's structural, that's providing um, a degree of easing? And, and while I still use the word Or while we're using the word easing, I think the context of that is uh, is really important that it's still a highly constrained um, market and market conditions. Um, You know, especially if you point to, I was literally just talking to a customer, we were talking about labor and availability of labor um, to produce products, to move products. And uh, the, the labor markets are still very, very constrained. And so there's still, there's still structural things out there that are concerning um, to the point where you would tend to be optimistic about uh, any type of sustained easing in the, in the business.
0: And what, and what are some of those structural issues? Well, it's,
1: uh, it's interesting. I, I try to simplify things and think about, uh, think about things in terms of supply and demand. And the, the labor market is certainly one of those things that's, that's a concern. Um, and I also think about what's happening on the consumer demand side. Um, and, and when I say structural, I'm thinking about things that are more longer term in, in nature. Um, from, a, from a labor standpoint, we've, we've, we're sitting at very, very low uh, levels of, of unemployment. I think the latest number was 3538. Uh, just about everybody that wants to work has a job, um, but relative to the demand that's in the marketplace, um, manufacturers can't get labor. People that are in the distribution business can't get labor to support the, the, the demand that's in the marketplace. So that's a problem uh, because you can't get raw materials um, or you can't get product produced towards to demand. Um, and so that's, that's, again, one of the biggest concerns that I've got, John, when you kind of look at structural, the other thing, and I think you had asked the question about demographics is, is that, you know, do demographics, uh, play a longer term role, uh, from a labor standpoint, uh, which I think it's something that we all have to think about, um, as time goes from the standpoint of, of supporting, um, supporting demand that that the world has um and the relative need for for improvement in processes improvement in automation,
0: uh, you're singing my song because i um I've been talking about demographics for quite some time as a as a reason uh, tracy can you can mute that yeah yeah, l- ladies and gentlemen who are listening to this, we've been having a few technical problems and we're, we're trying to work around them. So anyway, but l- let me let me go on about that. I've been, uh, I've spoken on FreightWaves live many times about demographics. I'm of the baby boom era and uh, I see uh, people all around me retiring. They're exiting the market and they're probably not going to come back. They might come back, but uh, this is a, a huge impact and this has been kind of on the book for 60 years. The other thing, a very kind of a microeconomic story I would tell is, I changed planes in Atlanta last Saturday night. And it wasn't like Saturday night at 10 o'clock. It was Saturday night at seven o'clock. And I was hungry and I wanted to get something to eat. And I walked past closed restaurant after closed restaurant. And the only possible reason I would think that they were all closed is they just couldn't get enough workers to stay open, and maybe that's a little less of a demand time than others. I know Saturday evenings are considered a very low period for air travel, uh, but boy, you really do see it on the street, and I guess you see it as well. Uh, let me ask you let me go back to a, something you may, meant earlier, may, said earlier. You talked about data that you look at on a daily basis, um, and that's kind of giving you an indication that uh, there's some easing. We talked about freight rates, we talked about, oh, I could say, a volume index. What are some of the the, the go-to numbers that you might look at that maybe the average person might not look at?
1: Yeah. So really, really good question. So when I'm thinking about the, the kind of the macro world, um, I, I do again, try to look at things from a supply and demand perspective. So we do look at, um, you know, what's happening with uh, with the, the purchasing indices, um, the the ISM index, um, to understand you know, how, how our customers are thinking about and manufacturers are thinking about orders. I look at inventory levels, retail sales inventory ratios, uh, things of that nature. Um, and speaking of, of kind of back to structural issues, um, right now inventory levels are really, really low. Um, I think about um, what's happening with consumer confidence and consumer savings and what's happening with consumers' balance sheets, um, so those are more of the, the broader kind of economic health factors. Um, and then as it relates to um, operational KPIs, we're looking very closely at routing guide performances, first tender accept, the time that it takes for a first tender accept, um, how long a routing guide stays intact, what's what's happening with on-time pickup, what's happening with reschedules for pickup, reschedules for delivery, and, um, all of those types of things, um, John, that kind of indicate day-to-day operational health of the network. Um, the other piece is variability in in, uh, in, in flows and transits, um, because one of the it's it's a much, it's a whole lot easier to plan a supply chain when there's less variability. Um, but when there's variabilities in lead times, uh, that, that becomes really hard for our customers to deal with and our customers' customers to, uh, to contend with. Um, John, one last thing that, that we look at are two, two other things operationally is we really look closely at our shippers networks to understand how much they're shipping out of an engineered pattern um, and an engineered network design and also what's happening with their fill rates. The average weight or cube of, uh, of shipments in their network.
0: Okay, can you define engineered rates, or I guess you said engineered rates or routes? Uh, I'm not familiar with that term. What is it?
1: Yeah, so um, customers want to optimally align their distribution networks um, to their um, to their points of destinations. So, and they'll deploy their inventory such that they can serve their customers with the least amount of cost and the highest degree of service. And what we've seen because of labor issues, inventory issues, um, is that uh, – well, let me back up just a second. And then uh, what what will happen once that network is designed and engineered for optimal service and cost um, is there will be a procurement exercise against those forecasted volumes and lanes. And what we're seeing happening in the network is that um, because of the labor issues, because of the inventory issues, because the production concerns um, that exist in, in the erratic um, production um, capabilities that exist, we're seeing our shippers in our uh, they're shipping out of network. So they're shipping more miles, less fill rates um, than, than they have optimally designed. And that adds cost to their business and creates variability
0: in lead time as well. Right. But as the supply chain problems ease, presumably they would do that less, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the uh, so we measure that for customers, bring that to their attention so that they can make decisions about their business and their network um, and how they service customers. And hopefully as supply and demand come back more in equilibrium. Then uh, then their network overall gets back to a point of health and they can operate against their engineered network design.
0: Got it. Looking back now, could this have been avoided or was this just kind of baked in? You had situations you've never had before. I mean, you had a pandemic. Of course, we've had pandemics before, but nothing like this, certainly in the modern age. Uh, and you had this bizarre situation that nobody really foresaw, which was you had a collapse in the economy that lasted about two months. And then everybody went out and started buying all sorts of stuff. And I, I don't think anybody predicted that. So could this have been avoided or or was this just inevitable?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know that it could have been avoided because it was, um, you know, just when you think you've seen it all, you see more. Uh, and I think back to 2018 when you think you, you've seen it all. And um, I think what could have been done is it, it, the, the impacts could have been mitigated. Um, and so by that, I mean, um, you know, uh, could there have been more attention around critical key performance indicators um, around the health of, of people's supply chains and, and the interconnectivity um both upstream and downstream and, and organization supply chain. And if you have the data, that's that. Uh, if you have the right key performance measures and you have timely, accurate data, it can give you indications of the health of your business so you can collaborate internally and externally with your key constituents and stakeholders to make really rapid business decisions. That's the piece that I saw that was missing going into this situation, I have seen it get better. Um, and so when when we talk about this, um, you know, supply chain issues, it's it's really complex. And at the same time, um, I think the world of supply chain has advanced greatly because of what we've been through the last 18 to 24 months. If you haven't, you're, you're certainly... Um, you're certainly missing a tremendous opportunity that um, you're probably not doing as well as your competitors.
0: Now, you left the shipper side a few years ago. You came from a really, really big shipper, Walmart. And Walmart, I guess, has always been known as being really on the uh, cutting edge of technology. Uh, so if, if we assume that Walmart is kind of at the, the top of the heap in terms of being a, a smart shipper, um, how far below is the rest, of the rest of the average shippers? And based on what you just said, are, are they getting better? or do you think shippers are coming out of this supply chain uh, kind of horror show uh, smarter as they go forward, and maybe moving a little bit toward that standard that somebody like Walmart sets?
1: Well, Walmart did a lot of things right. And had the benefit of tremendous, tremendous scale and resources uh, from in terms of the relationships that have been developed um, with with providers and also the technology that have been developed. And I think that's when I look at um, an entity like TransPlace and Uber Freight, and I think about um, the scale at which we can bring um, to bear with, with $15 billion of freight under management in the reach that we have from a capacity standpoint now due to the marriage. We're now digitally connected to um, 135,000 carriers with the, with the marriage of TransPlace and Uber Freight. And, uh, and we're collecting data through a uh, centralized TMS platform so that we can see and feel and breathe, uh, or we can see and feel how the, how the economy is breathing. And so we have very much real-time information at scale, Um, so that we can help our shippers and our customers make uh, very, very rapid business decisions and can help people connect upstream and downstream to key stakeholders. Um, So to me, the, the playing field is, is certainly uh, much more level uh, because you've got scalable platforms, shipper platforms, and now a shipper carrier platform um, that has significant scale to it. So, so yeah, it, it feels great to be on on this side of the of the business, seeing the world through these lens because there's there's significant benefit that can be brought to customers today.
0: So is there internal data at and I won't call it all internal data because Uber Freight is part of Uber and you're a publicly traded company, and there are statistics that are released every quarter about how well Uber Freight is doing. Um and it's been going, you know, it's been getting better, and I guess I guess the last Earnings report said the company was going uh, Uber Freight would be cash flow positive, free cash flow positive maybe by the next quarter. I, I don't remember. I shouldn't be speaking this without having uh, uh, evidence that uh, having researched it. But are you seeing significant gains in let's say attracting carriers to the combination of Transplace and Uber Freight, or maybe attracting more shippers who want to use it because of the tie to this network of carriers?
1: While I can't speak to um, specific financial information, what I can do is speak very clearly to the advantage of the marriage um, between TransPlace and Uber Freight in in this platform that now exists of of, uh, what I think is a premier shipper platform with premier carrier platform. In that now, um, Uber Freight, because of its relationship with these carriers and many of them in the short haul network, um, and many with the highly fragmented, disaggregated, small fleet operators and independent contractors. Um, now they have a, a view of premier shipper networks and availability to um, highly efficient freight that they might not have had access to before. And so and now our shippers have very efficient access to what I would call the long tail of capacity, which are, nominal carriers who provide great service at great rates, um, our shipper community now has access to, uh, to that capacity. And that's what our shippers are looking for. And so I I can tell you that, um, that we're figuring out the smart ways to blend those two together to bring benefit to all those who participate on the platform, both carriers and shippers alike.
0: Well, like I said, Uber is a publicly traded company and they do put out statistics on Uber Freight every. Every quarter, so the kind of situation that you're discussing, you'd see those showing up in the numbers. So we we wish you good luck, and uh, hopefully uh, the, the Uber Freight Transplace marriage will be one of the uh, combinations that help get us out of this supply chain mess. So we want to thank you, Trey, for joining us here today on Drilling Deep.
1: Yeah, John, thanks so much for your time.
0: You haven't listened to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host for today, John Kingston, and please join us again.